And I want to say something uh, that responds to something a couple of people have already brought up uh, individually, which is uh, this territory around relaxing the sense of self, relaxing the sense of me, myself, and I, is on the one hand, certainly in a Buddhist frame, it's considered to be a very fundamental part of practice and one that becomes increasingly central as one moves through the more beginning stages into the intermediate and then, as it were, even the advanced stages of practice. Even though this material on not-self is very fundamental, on the other hand, there are certain cautions about using it. Because if a person is prone to feeling depersonalized or dissociated or even psychotic in a psychological sense, this is not good stuff to talk about. Right? You know, I, I, have, I think of a little bit of the psyche as a metaphor of a mosaic, a lot of tiles, different parts, deconstructed tiles, you know, and it's kind of a grout or a matrix, if you will. And I've had clients who, uh, I want them to have more glue, you know, holding those tiles together. Come on back. You really are somebody, okay? You really are, trust me. <laughs> With the authority invested in me by the Buddha Dharma League, you are self. No, because you need to think you're a self. Okay, so, you know, be careful about this. And if you're at all prone yourself to feeling a kind of meaninglessness or barrenness in existence or just kind of going out into nothingness, be a little careful about this material. And um, for me at least, you know, it, uh, it can be unnerving and disorienting to <clears throat> relax that sense of self. That's why I think it, it's also important to look for opportunities to nourish the... Um, uh, the, the felt sense of peace, contentment, and love, and also to nourish uh, the experience of being fed by the arising, even as we're more and more acutely aware of the vanishing, the passing away. Okay. So uh, also recognizing that more people will drift in. It was a super short lunch break. Sorry about that. Maybe there's a question from the group or a comment, and then I'll dive into this next chunk about the brain. Right there. I don't know, Diane, if you want to get the microphone to him. Right there. Keep that hand up. Diane can find you. Rotating over there. There we go. Thanks for putting up with this process. Hey. Is it on? I think it's on. Great. Ah, we need two things that are on. Thank you. How's that? Great, great. Rick, thanks so much for this day and uh, and for the uh, the just one thing emails. That's Kind of how I got introduced to you, and that was a great gateway. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask about the negativity bias in the brain, and the you know, the brain being Velcro for for bad stuff, and and um, Teflon for the good. And I understand from a survival and an evolutionary standpoint why it would be better 
to be safe than sorry. But I also wonder about if you've seen anything or any evidence that being happier is better than being sad in terms of survival and evolution. Oh, that's really interesting. Right? <clears throat> and, and so I just, I wonder about that because I wonder, you know, are we meant to just be negative or is there a place for positivity? It's a wonderful, you know, inquiry right there. And, and I'll try to respond succinctly and control my tendency to, you know, kind of really get into the details of it all. Um, so first of all, as we've evolved biologically, we now have various capabilities and tendencies. On the other hand, I think it's important to be careful in terms of telling a story about uh, being human that comes from evolution, that if we don't get too trapped in that evolutionary story or use that evolutionary story for other agendas. And what we have in, been endowed with through biological evolution is a whole very wide range as a human species of capabilities and inclinations that now we get to decide what we're going to do with, right? And so we can, even if we have a tendency toward, let's say, over-learning from the negative, which on average the brain does, that said, we can work with it, we can compensate for it, and we can gently guide our brain, we can train our brain in a different direction. First point. Second point, there's a lot of natural variation. I remember this teaching I got from... Um, uh, this professor I had at the tail end of college, he said that there was supposedly, I think it was true, this famous handbook of psychology that in 600 fine print pages summarized everything known about human beings. And in the back of that 600 page summary of the whole Ed Psych library at UCLA, right, was a 50 page summary of the 600 page summary. And in the back of the 50 page summary of the 600 page summary of the library were three sentences that summarized everything. And the third. <laughs> And the three sentences were about everything that's known about human beings. Some do and some don't. Uh, the similarities are greater than the differences, and it's more complicated than that. <laughs> right? And I think that really says it. So there's a lot of natural variation. And so in individual DNA, if you will, you know, biology, nature, uh, are multiple tendencies that kind of jostle with each other in feedback loops. They balance around and so forth. And also in individuals, thinking about us evolving in tribal bands that bred mainly internally, in which there was good to have diversity of capabilities and inclinations, you know, some people are more inclined in one direction or more inclined in another. Okay. All that said, a way for me that this kind of lands is from a biological perspective, thinking about green zone of, in three umbrella terms, peace, contentment, and love or thinking about the red zone, the reactive mode of the brain, in broad umbrella terms, in terms of fear, frustration, and heartache, or in the Buddha's language, hatred, greed, and heartache. Right? Thinking of those as two fundamental settings, it's an oversimplification. A lot of life is kind of a blend, but we know the difference between feeling peaceful and frightened or angry, or between feeling loved and loving and having a broken heart. We know what that feels like. Okay. <clears throat> Mother Nature's biological plan, which doesn't need to be, all, be the be-all and end-all, but it certainly is kind of where we start from biologically. Mother Nature's biological plan 
is for animals, including us, to spend most of our time in the green zone because that is sustainable, it's homeostatic, it's an equilibrium condition, the body repairs and refuels itself in that place, and uh, it, is, uh, it feels good to be in that place because it's good for us. That's why it feels good to be peaceful, contented, and loving, uh, or loved, in terms of our deep needs to avoid harms, approach rewards, and attach to others. Okay? On the other hand, from a purely passing on genes to passing, pass on genes standpoint, Mother Nature also wants us to be able to get out of the green zone at the crackle of a twig in the brush nearby, or these days, you know, an angry attack uh, across a, an office table. Uh, and then we go into the red zone, the reactive mode, where we fire up into fight-or-flight responses or immobilizing freeze responses to deal with immediate threats. And in Mother Nature's plan, we're supposed to get out of the red zone quickly. As Robert Sapolsky writes in his book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, uh, all episodes of stress in the wild end quickly, one way or another. <laughs> you know? So that's, those are our endowments, all right? So, um, so then we think about what are the implications of that for practice, okay? Now, if the truth is we're in a war zone or we grew up in a war zone, being able to, to be red and stay red and to have the brain's capacity to overlearn from red zone experiences, that's the negativity bias in a nutshell, um, that's very adaptive for survival purposes and for passing on genes. It may be lousy for quality of life, but it's a good way to live to see the sunrise, right? And then pass on genes that pass on genes. So we have that capacity, but generally speaking, red zone experiences are not good for us, but they don't feel good either. Right? And they're not good for other people when we're in the red zone, when we're caught with fear, frustration, and heartache, or hatred, greed, and heartache, wrapped with delusion. Right? And so um, I think that a takeaway from all this is to get out of red zone states as quickly as is authentically possible, uh, not going red about being in red, not going negative about negative, because then you just have more negative, coming out of it relatively quickly, and then as much as we can, repeatedly internalize green zone experiences, turn responsive green zone states into green zone responsive traits, so that increasingly we can engage challenges in life while resting in a fundamental, unconditional, not based on external conditions, underlying sense of peace, contentment, and love. I think that's the opportunity for us. So in that sense, happiness is exactly what you said. It is skillful means. Uh, it's good for us. Um, certainly in everyday life, including challenges in everyday life, but there are not challenges where we need to run in screaming terror, peaking in the red zone, right? It's more like just the hassles of everyday life. And that's where I think the Buddha's teaching about the distinction between the first and second dart is really helpful. He says, basically, things will, be ple- things will be unpleasant, things will be pleasant, things will be heartfelt. That's just the way it is, okay? Stimulus, and then there's a, there are stimuli of various kinds, what he called contact. There are stimuli of various kinds, and then there is the very quick response to them, okay? Over time, we can change that response to various stimuli to some extent, but you drop a brick on the foot of anybody, including a Buddha, it's still going to hurt. Right? Okay. 
delicious things will still be pleasant. They will still taste sweet, even if you're awakened. Right? We can't get rid of the brainstem, subcortex, and cortex, the reptilian, mammalian, and primate human stages of evolution. We can't get rid of the capacity to go red or green. The question is, where do we rest more and more of the time? Right? And so that's what he basically says. Unpleasant, pleasant, and, and neutral, and heartfelt will arise. What do you do with it? Do you go green or red about that? Can you relate to the unpleasant from an underlying sense of strength, protection, easing, acceptance, and peace? Or do you go to war with it or run screaming for your life from the unpleasant? When you're faced with the pleasant, right? How do you relate to it? Do you relate to it on the basis of a prior sense of contentment where you're enjoying it, you're liking it, but you don't tip into wanting, drivenness, pressure, got to have it? My precious. Right? right? Or do you go to Gollum? You know, do you go to, do you go to, got to have it, right? And similarly with heartfelt. Um, sweet things happen, beautiful. Do we suddenly want to get more narcissistic supplies, more praise, you know, more connection, more eros, etc.? Or can we be with what's heartfelt? Uh, with an underlying sense of already being loved enough. Wow. Already being liked enough. Be nice to have more, but can there be that felt sense of being already connected enough as the way we relate to that which is heartfelt? That's the choice, right? That's the choice. And what, in many ways, Buddhism is about, to paraphrase a teacher named Upandita, is, as he puts it, it's to expand the range of experiences in which we are free. If unpleasant, pleasant, or heartfelt occur, and we're tipped into the red zone, we're not free. The trick is to become increasingly liberated so that even as the unpleasantness of a, of a stimulus or the pleasantness of a stimulus or the heartfeltness of a stimulus increase, we can re- remain equanimous about it. We can remain in the green zone in our relationship to it, rooted in an underlying deep sense of peace, contentment, and love. That's a beautiful way to think about practice, I think, and one that's very consistent with the neuropsychology of learning and how we actually grow in our, in the, in our process. Yeah. Or as Dr. Phil puts it, that fundamental Dharma question, so how's that working for you? <laughs> right there. So unpleasant, pleasant, or heartfelt arise. How's it working for you, your response? Causes and effect. Could be working fine. Cool. On the other hand, hmm, are you getting your knickers in a twist or getting all driven about it and creating suffering and harm for yourself and others? Okay. So to that point, let's talk about... Oh, my can. What's going on here? My computer. (laughs) All right, here we go. So self in the brain. All right? So... I'm going to clip through a chunk of material kind of briskly, right? I recognize that you're coming back from lunch, and I want to keep it going. If you start falling asleep, it's okay to stand up. Hopefully you won't. And I've done a lot of rock climbing, and I've kind of learned that like on slabs, if you don't keep moving up, you start sliding down. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep going. Here we, okay, here we go. So let's talk about self and the brain. This is a slide, and again, if you want the slides, just give me your email address. I won't share it with anybody, and like I said, if you 
unless you say just slides, which is fine, no bad karma, I promise, it's okay. I'll try not to take it personally if you say just slides. Uh, Unless you say that, I'll subscribe you to my newsletter, and if you're already subscribed to it, you won't get two issues sent to you, because it'll only send one issue to a single email address. Okay. This is a um, literature review of a bunch of studies on different aspects of the apparent self and how the activations related to the apparent self uh, manifest in the brain. And I forget which is which, but you'll see up here, if it's in focus enough, little diamonds, squares, and crosses. And those have to do with, one, recognizing your own picture in a group of people, two, um, taking a position about a moral choice, like capital punishment, or is it okay to spank children, or what have you, uh, or eat meat. Uh, And then third, pulling up a personal memory. Okay? Well, what do you notice here? What you notice is that these little squiggles, uh, uh, depending on whether a person relates to it from a, you know, these little, these little experiences of me, myself, and I are widely distributed around the brain. There's no particular place in the brain where it does self or where that little homunculus, that little creature, the being looking through the eyes is located. And it's really interesting also because in the brain there's tremendous localization of function in most regards. In other words, there are places that do the production of language or the comprehension of language, the little sections that do different parts of the sensory strips uh, in the body that that are allocated to sensing in the thumb, say, or the earlobe, different parts of the brain there. There are even different parts of the brain that do the sense of separation from all that is as as an entity over here. Um, even little parts that just recognize certain faces. There's a lot of localization of function in the brain. And yet, for something that seems so intimate, so, so real, as a sense of I, the neural substrates, at least, of that apparent sense of I, are widely distributed. We can see here that they're compounded, made up of parts, right? And also, these activations come and go, came and went, based on the prompts in these various studies. In other words, the neural substrates of the experience of self uh, arose dependently, not independently. Okay? And, by the way, these comings and goings were impermanent. They were transient. So here we can see in this uh, literature review that this three primary constituting attributes of the so-called self, that it's unified, enduring, and independent, are not to be found in the brain. In a different literature review that took a look in much the same way, although in this one there was the contrast between um, tasks that were self-referential versus tasks that were other-referential. For example, self-referential would be, um, you know, what did you do in your summer, this recent summer? Okay? And then pick someone important to you in your life, your partner, a family member, what have you, what did this other person do in the summer? That's the contrast between self and other, right? Um, you know, words like friendly or cautious, let's say. You would look at a word and, you know, pick three words that apply to you, okay? Now pick three words that apply to your mother. So it's other reference. You see the contrast? Here, too, what do you see? You see, first of all, that the white dots 
the self-referential dots, various laboratory-type tasks giving to people that seem related to, the, to me. The white dots are widely distributed throughout the brain. Okay? And the other thing you can see here is that the blue dots that have to do with the other person are also widely distributed throughout the brain, including in areas where the white dots are. In other words, there's no place in the brain that is, as the, in the title of the paper from the two women who wrote it, I, I got to hear them present at a conference once, um, that there's no place in the brain that is self-specific. It does seem that when we go into kind of daydreaming with a fair amount of self-referential um, processing in that, you know, where there's both a sense of I imagining my life in which I'm imagining future me's in my life. There is some activation in the rear regions of the so-called default network in the midline of the brain, but that back part of the default network also does tons of other things, and other parts of the brain light up as well when people are doing self-related tasks or are having representations of the apparent self. So here again, in this image too, we see that, huh, not just in our experience, when we're going back and forth between there is a sensation and I'm having a sensation, but also when you look at the hardware of the brain, there's, you know, the, that the neural substrates of selfing are compounded rather than unified. They are transient rather than enduring and they arise dependently rather than being independent. So what's the takeaway from here, right? That's what this thing says here, just what I said. And also, if you think about it, given the total processing stream that's happening in the brain, both in the cortex, which is where those images were were from, those studies were about cortical activations, but in the lower and more ancient layers of the brain, in that whole stream, of processing. Um, Self, the apparent self, is just one content among many. Just one collection of processes or dynamics among many, which is the final point down below. It's just part of the person. Now, perhaps the most intractable sense of being an I has to do with the sense of being a witness to one's own experience. Who, rather than what, right? Who is that witness? Well, in ordinary experience, there is an inherent um, quality of what's called ipseity, or subjectivity, in that experiences happen from a particular perspective or within a particular perspective that's associated with a specific body. In other words, the sense of sounds being heard, that occurs in your own experiencing in a very natural way from the perspective of your particular ears and where they're located rather than the ears of someone on the other side of the room. Even in very, very quiet meditation, where the contents of consciousness tend to fall out and get very, there's not much going on there, right? Even still, there's this sense in awareness that's, that's there of a kind of, you know, the thought that passes through the mind or 
you know, the sound that comes and goes happens in reference to a, to a certain witnessing. What do we make of that? I think what we make of it is that that's inherent in experiencing. Subjectivity is inherent in experiencing. And then what the brain does is it indexes across many moments of subjectivity to find what is invariant across those many moments. And what it finds across those many moments of of subjectivity is it collapses that uh, subjectivity in many moments. That's a process of subjectivity. It essentializes that process of subjectivity that into a noun, into a subject. So it's inherent in ordinary experience for there to be subjectivity, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a subject. And when I realized that in my own practice, that was kind of a breakthrough. And I invite you into that yourself. You can see there is subjectivity, but that doesn't need to mean that there is actually a, an essentialized, reified entity who is a subject. Okay. So what's the takeaway point? Let me do a couple more slides and see what you think about this, then we'll dive into some practices with it for sure. Okay. So <clears throat> where are we now? The ordinary notion embedded in Western psychology and philosophy, you see it all over the place, right? including in everyday interactions with other people, is that uh, there really is a stable being inside over here interacting with stable beings inside over there. That's the presumption, right? Okay. But what is actually the case in our own experience? In our own experience, we can never find that presumed I. Right? There are many stories about it. There are references to it. Uh, we can see aspects of the presumed I, implicit in our perspectives, implicit in our desires, but we can never find the whole Megillah, the whole enchilada itself. Similarly in the brain. There too, we cannot find a unified, enduring, and independent neural substrate of the presumed I. In effect, whether it's in our own experience or in the brain itself, uh, self is empty in the technical sense. It is empty of absolute self-existence. It is empty of being uh, unified, enduring, and independent. So now here's an even deeper question. The constituting attributes of self that really make it real, presumably, are that it is unified, independent, uh, and enduring. What happens if the constituting attributes of self are non-existent? Because we can see that both mentally and neurologically that the apparent self is compounded rather than unified, It is transient rather than enduring, and it is dependent rather than independent. In other words, the constituting factors or attributes that make the self exist don't exist themselves. In other words, I think that in the mind, based on patterns in the brain, there are representations of horses, for example. And... I think horses are real. 
Now the representations in our experience of horses are in the technical sense empty, in that those representations themselves are made up of parts, they're transient, they arise dependently, okay? Those representations are real, right? A thought of a horse, an image of a horse, knowledge of a horse, and so forth. And the neural substrates of those representations are real, they're objective, they are material. I'm presuming that materiality really does exist, okay? Uh, can't prove it. Had all too many conversations, uh, sometimes drug-enhanced in college about all that, but not much used to it. Uh, okay. And, and these are representations of entities out there, horses, that even if in a material sense they are technically empty. Horses are made up of many parts. They are transient. Those parts are transient. They will come and they will go. The horse altogether will come and it will go. And the conditions that create the horse arise dependently, etc., etc. Okay? But horses are real. They exist. Okay? Similarly, think about unicorns. We can have ideas about unicorns, little, uh, you know, pictures about unicorns. Those representations in the mind about unicorns are real. They are empty representations about unicorns, okay? They are compounded, transient, and interdependently arising, as are their neural substrates, okay? But those representations are real, they exist, but they refer to, sorry to disappoint, they refer to a non-existent creature. Right? A horse-like being with a big horn on its forehead. Okay? Right? I think the self is much the same. I think we have lots and lots of real representations of a non-existent creature. That is the apparent self. Self is like a unicorn. All right. What do you think about this? I like unicorns. I do too, you know. All right. Okay, any comments or questions so far? Trying not to get too heady about this, and then let's do a practice. Okay. So this, what I've tried to do here, again, you know, following the Dalai Lama's admonition to study, is to try to summarize a lot of dharma about self in Buddhism and kind of look at it in part through the lens of evolutionary neuropsychology. All right? And the real takeaway here is ultimately, it's neat to think about this philosophically, but to really take your, into your own experience. When you're just eating, when you're walking, when you're cuddling your babies, when you're making love, when you're falling asleep, when you're worrying about a problem, when you're analyzing something, you can look again and again and again. In all this, is there a self, as it's defined in psychology, is there a, a unified owner of experiences and agent of actions to be found? And also, what happens increasingly as we relax a lot around all that and open out into and empty out into being a person as the basis for our engagement with life and relax increasingly the positionalities, the possessivenesses, the defendedness, etc., of, around this, you know, to me, mythical, fictional character, I. Okay. Max. I just had a question about, um, can you get a lobotomy? Rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. Right? <laughs> That's the old line, right? They don't really do those anymore, right? But I mean... Excuse me. Yeah. 
Max is going to tell us about lobotomies. Well, I don't know so. much about lobotomies, but I was just... Well, the thought came, like, if you could find a place in the brain where the self was arising, then yeah. people might try to do some kind of, like, Buddhist surgery or something. Yeah, right. right. But, right. but then I thought, like, lobotomy... Do you know anything about if someone has a lobotomy, if they still have that self, imagined? Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, you're right. And even as people, for example, demand, you know, there could be a, a reduced sense of self. And... A little bit later, I'll get into the ways in which a sense of self can be useful under certain conditions, as, as long as I think we appreciate that it's like that raft in that Buddhist metaphor, that it's a means to an end and something we're also really careful about, kind of a yellow flag condition. Um, and also to be clear, again, as I'll get to in a moment, um, to lose the sense of being a person which I think of myself as a kind of standing wave. You imagine in a river moving over a boulder, there's a standing wave. And the wave has some stability, even though its elements are continually changing, it's compounded, it's transient, it arises dependently, right? It still has some uniqueness, some individuality. Um, and I think it's, can be a, it can be either deeply illuminating or terribly shocking to feel, you know, non-existent as that wave, right? And I'm not talking about that. And I think it's important to be careful with this material and to, to use it as a raft but not um, get into trouble around it. Um, to a little different metaphor and one that other people have used is to think about the ocean. This for me is really a quite a powerful and somehow very touching metaphor, personally. The ocean has waves. Out in the middle of the Pacific, there are these swells, right? So let's imagine slowing time down, super slow-mo. We see a, a swell coming into existence. It hangs out for a while. It persists. It has certain lacy patterns of foam on it, you know. Uh, it's different from other swells in the sea. And yet, eventually, that particular swell will return into ocean. And always, all along, that particular swell, that particular wave, was ocean altogether, arising based on a vast network of causes in ocean altogether. And in some ways, I think that a way to relate to, um, you know, life is to realize that we are oceans. And, pardon me, we are, we are oceans, that we are waves whose nature always is ocean. From ocean we arise, to ocean we return. Always already ocean. Always already, fundamentally, you know, partaking of allness, arising and passing away. Um, perhaps, and I think, you know, rested in unconditionality as the ground. Okay. And then we don't get so uptight about my lacy pattern of foam is better than yours. <laughs> okay, but I, I actually was curious though about like the brain and it's <laughs> no, I hear you on all that thing because <laughs> you know about the brain a lot, right? So, yeah, so I was curious what happens, or maybe I'm way off topic here. 
if, with like an actual lobo like with the if they've done any research on that. Yeah, I'm not I only know a little about lobotomies. They typically it's pretty brutal. They would go up into the frontal lobes and they would just break a lot of connections. What happens basically is people still feel like a self. They just become instead of a highly upset, uh, usually a woman who's a pain in the neck to men. Frankly, if you look at who was lobotomized, uh, or a a kid who's just a handful. Again, if you look at who was lobotomized, they, they continue to exist, but, but there's a real sense of numbness and disconnection. Now, that, that said, there are these two nodes, on one's on the left side, one's on the right side, back in the parietal lobes, that um, uh, one node tends to kind of establish a fundamental distinction between self and world, person and world, body and world, so you don't walk into walls, right? And the other node tends to localize where we are, Okay, I forget which is which in the moment. But what seems to happen, and Jill Bolte-Taylor had this happen for her, if you know her stuff on My Stroke of Insight, when people just kind of deactivate those nodes, whoosh, they open out into allness quite radically. And it gets interesting to play around with, okay, how can I use mental practices to relax that uh, boundary between self and world at will, not to become psychotic about it, but more to become awakened by it, right? In Dogen's line, to become illuminated by all things, as I forget the self. Um, you know, and people can do mental training about that, and probably with neurofeedback as well, they can cultivate that. Having a stroke is not the best way to become awakened. You know, it's a little collateral damage. Okay. All right. Good. Thank you. All right. Keep rolling. Another comment or question? Ray, Diane, I'll about Anybody new, shooting for somebody new with glasses there? White sleeve, hand high, right behind you. That's great. Hand high, good. So not to open a controversial can of worms, I have a question about, like, um, neurochemical balance whether it like, like taking neurotransmitter support or yeah, does it help or not help in making these connections, these neural connections? Yeah, um, really good question, and no problem with the can of worms. You know, therapists rush in where angels fear to tread. <laughs> uh, so briefly here. Um, there are three places to intervene to make things better, if you think about it, out there in the world, in the body, in the mind, okay? Recognizing that, at least inside the natural frame, the mind arises dependently upon the body, but I think the mind has a causal power in life of its own, in which it enlists the brain. As Dan Siegel puts it, speaking of Dan coming here uh, to do his thing on uh, Brainstorm in a month or so, the mind uses the brain to make the mind. Okay, so we any, any one of these three places to intervene. In other words, if, if I'm... If I'm feeling, um, if I'm having a, a pain in my head, a throbbing headache that's really exacerbated by the jackhammer going on outside my front door, right? I can deal with that by going outside and asking them to stop jackhammering my sidewalk, okay? Or second, I could intervene in my body by taking some Advil. Or I can work with my mind so that the pain might be there, but it doesn't bother me anymore. There is pain, but no longer suffering. Okay? Any one of those domains is important to intervene in. They're not mutually exclusive. My focus here is intervening with the mind, mainly. That said, 
you know, if the neural substrates, if your, if your neurochemistry, if you will, is off, um, and pragmatically speaking, helping it shift to a more balanced place through a physiological intervention rather than a psychological intervention, if physiological interventions are really helpful, why not use them, right? Similarly, if psychological interventions are really helpful, why not use them? So I, myself, am quite pragmatic about this in my view, uh, professionally and personally. And I've known a number of people who worked really hard in their mental practices, which just were getting smothered by something off in their own neurochemistry. And when they finally intervene in that neurochemistry, their psychological, mental trainings or practices, etc., could really sink in, take root, and bear fruit. Flip the other way, I've known people who just go way too fast to that quick fix. You know, I think studies have shown that uh, on average, uh, general practitioners write a prescription for antidepressants within six minutes of a typical visit. It only, you know, the average duration from patient walking through the door to whipping out this prescription pad is six minutes. You know, and I've also known people who would take uh, psychotropic meds, usually antidepressants, and they were blunting. You know, yeah, they no longer felt horrible, but they no longer felt anything. You know, so, and then sometimes what works is to do uh, a, a physiological intervention for a while, use it as kind of a brace on the knee, you know, skillful means, scaffolding, if you will, build up the building through mental training, and then gradually withdraw the medication if that's appropriate for a person. And then also on the way, paying attention to the body, you know, making sure you have new, good nutrition, um, being thoughtful about the immune system and managing allergies because the immune system interacts with the nervous system. And also thinking about things like the nutritional precursors to um, serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter that regulates mood, the precursors being tryptophan and 5-hydroxytryptophan. You know, feeling your way into what really works for you. All that said, um, I think what's really quite profound is the power of the mind. You know, um, and... Research is showing more and more the power of mental training, mental practice. Okay. How about one more person? Right back there, all the way in the back, hand up. So, great. Um, I'm going to try and formulate my question. um, Sure. As I say it. So... uh, Earlier today, you mentioned um, a broader sense of awareness, which would be slightly different than maybe a, like self-person. And so my curiosity, maybe I could ask different questions to try and s- explain where I'm curious from. So in a normal person, when they refer to self, you showed the pictures, the MRIs. So I'm curious if there's any cross-study with... like. Um, monks who meditate a lot or people who have gone into a more transcended state than the average Joe and if their brain would light up the same way Uh, okay Um, so that if one I can speak to that yeah is there a second part there well it's just like a conversation so you can go ahead oh sure okay (laughs) well briefly you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. So if people have been repeatedly traumatized, mistreated, you know, and so forth, 
their brains will look different from people who haven't been. Flip the other way, people who've repeatedly uh, focused, uh, done concentration practices and really studied their mind, or people who've repeatedly cultivated loving kindness or compassion, they have brains that look different from people who haven't typically done that sort of thing. And um, basically the difference is a quick summary, if you like, are that people who routinely practice meditation tend to build up layers of cortex right behind the forehead, the executive regions of the brain. They also tend to build up layers of cortex in the insula, which tunes into oneself. Uh, They tend to have a less reactive or less sensitized amygdala, the alarm bell of the brain. They tend to also build up tissue in the hippocampus, a part of the brain that helps us remember things and especially put things in context and calm down stress reactions. That's a good thing. And two more findings briefly. Another one is there's increased uh, what's called gamma wave brainwave activity. Gamma waves are fast, 30 to 80 times a second. That's pretty wild to imagine vast coalitions of synapses, or neurons rather, firing synchronously, 30 to 80 times a second. And that gamma wave uh, activation, the increases of that, is associated with more sense of wholeness or integrativeness, unification of consciousness. And then last, a recent study, you may know about this one, showed that people who did a three-month concentration retreat compared to wait-listed, randomly assigned matched controls who are ready to take that retreat too. So this is a very refined group of people who can afford to take a three-month meditation retreat and who would want to, you know. (laughs) But anyway, and nonetheless, the people at the end of their uh, three-month retreat, they had uh, preserved telomeres, or sometimes pronounced telomeres, these strips of atoms at the tail ends of DNA, and as um, those little caps at the end of the DNA molecules shrink, that's associated with age-related diseases. So the interesting, amazing thing to think about it is that meditative practice did seem to have an impact at the level of strips of atoms inside a molecule of DNA. Okay, that's a quick summary. Yeah. I think that what I'm kind of driving at is that if there's a sense of awareness that's not small self, but maybe self with capital S, like that from which, to use the ocean metaphor, that from which the ocean springs, the waves can be person, but from what life force does the ocean spring? And if that, because of these studies that you mentioned, it sometimes, I think, is there a brain shift that occurs in people that, you know, move towards enlightenment that corresponds with a movement towards enlightenment, like neurologically. Right. And I guess what you're saying is yes, but I was just wondering if there was any more specific research on the experience of self or how it appears in the brain with people who, self in particular and I and awareness and how that's perceived. Um, but maybe that hasn't been done yet. Well, no, if I follow you right, you're asking a question that I'm very interested in too. And, you know, as someone who, I mean, for one, neuroscience is a baby science. There's so much that we don't know yet. And while it's pretty neat and cool to study, you know, enlightened people who would be willing to go into an MRI scan or something like that, there's not that much money for it because for obvious reasons, you know, most money goes to various pathologies, you know, distress and dysfunction. That said, um, these people that I think of that have like 50,000 lifetime hours of meditation and by account, these usually are Tibet, Tibetan practitioners, are the ones who are usually studied. 
uh, not always, but often. Um, by all accounts, they tend to be very happy, very loving, and they don't take things personally. So, okay, let's operationalize that as definitely a very reduced sense of self. Um, and what is the kind of preeminent finding for them is that uh, compared to even people who are at the, you know, have only a few thousand hours of meditation under their belt, in other words, they're already inclined in that direction still, these people have more of this gamma wave activity. Two, they have more of uh, an openness in response to the unpleasant. They don't, and they don't get worried about unpleasant electrical shock that's going to come to them as part of the study compared to regular people or even beginning meditators. And so their emotional reactions are not as charged. That's a finding in the brain. And also in the brain, there's more of an inclination toward helping those for whom they have compassion. So we're seeing these kind of changes. Nonetheless, most brain function is still the same. You know, going back to these, these images, it still kind of looks like this. I mean, their, their brains still look like that, basically. Now, um, so that suggests to me that little things can make a big difference over time. And that going back to the drop by drop as the water pot filled idea, bit by bit, we can cultivate these things. So you have a saying in Tibet, gradual cultivation, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, sudden awakening, right? And um, the last thing I'll say, if you have an interest in this, is to check out um, uh, James Austin's work on what's actually happening in the brain plausibly when people in Zen practice have an experience of Satori or Kensho. And... Um, I'm going to tell you this right now, and then we're going to do a practice from it. So how's that as a transition, okay? And I think that material is some of the neatest material around. So we're going to use that as a transition. I'll do this later um, into that material. Okay? That's great. Um, and as to what in the world might be happening in the brain in the moment of complete awakening, you know, uh, or uh, I don't know anybody who's considered to be completely enlightened, uh, these are unusual people, but they do exist, who's been willing to be scanned, you know, under various conditions. Um, it's interesting to imagine what we might see there. I think we'd still see a lot of brain activity because our current technology just can't get down to this deep level. But okay. But that said, this is this model from Austin, which will lead into a practice here. Okay? So, succinctly, if I can. Uh, James Austin's a neurologist. He wrote this thick book called Zen in the Brain. It's really thick. A lot of people have it. I have it. I don't know anyone has read it. But anyway, <laughs> but it sits under my computer monitor to kind of infuse it with mojo. Okay, fine. Then he wrote another book, Zen Brain Reflections, equally thick. I don't know if I get anybody read it. Then he wrote a thinner book, Selfless Insight. Uh, and then he has the thinnest book of all, right? He's moving through that handbook, the 600 pages, the 50 pages, the three sentences. Anyway, pretty soon Austin will be writing things on fortune cookies. But uh, anyway, long story short, it's really cool stuff. And the gist of it is this. So here we go. First part. Part one is attention. Attention has three sort of aspects to it neurologically. Alerting, orienting, and responding, it's called. So let's suppose 
Now let's suppose we could slow down your initial apprehension of that sound. To the, and we could take the first two seconds of your apprehension of that sound and slice it into milliseconds, thousandths of a second. So we have 2,000 little slices. That's pretty tiny, but we've got a brain, we've got neurons that are firing routinely 5 to 50 times a second. Okay? So, in the first tenth or so, if not twentieth of a second, the auditory cortices in your brain began to recognize that something had happened. That's the alerting response. In other cascading waves, after another tenth or so, or two or three tenths of a second passed in our slow-mo analysis of the processing stream, other waves of activation rippled through other networks in your brain to alert them also that something had happened. There wasn't, an, and you can watch this in your own experience, you don't, when, that, when the sound starts, in the first tenth of a second you don't know what it is, but you know something's happened. That's the alerting phase. Then comes the orienting phase. Where is that? Where is it? You know? And then comes the responding phase, this initial mobilization of resources to start to deal with that which we've attended to, particularly around the distinction friend or foe. Right? That's the normal process. So you can see alerting and then orienting and responding. In the brain, different networks handle alerting compared to orienting and responding. All right? um, Basically, in terms of the processing streams, generalizing speaking, general, generalizing, generally speaking, um, the um, lower processing streams, literally anatomically lower from a person who's standing, those handle alerting, whereas higher streams handle orienting and responding. Okay? More ancient streams typically handle alerting because it's a more fundamental function. Orienting and responding is a little more recent. Higher streams, typically more recent in evolution, substrates of the brain. Okay? That's part one. Part two. <clears throat> in any moment, or in any minute rather, the brain tends to shift back and forth between two ways of framing uh, perception, whether it's sights or sounds, taste, touches, or smells. Austin's work in his book is about sight. This is probably true for taste, touches, hearing, and smells as well. So one perspective from which we, let's say, see things is what's called egocentric. In other words, I'm seeing sights from the perspective of how this relates to me. The other perspective is allocentric, where I am seeing sights or engaging things from a more impersonal perspective in which no particular point of view is privileged. You know, things taken in an impersonal way. Interestingly, when we look down, we tend to activate egocentric uh, processing networks around the visual stream. And when we look at the horizon line or above it, we tend to activate those allocentric, impersonal, not self, if you will, modes of processing. Okay? 
And Austin is working his way through this to explain what in the world could be going on in the brain during Satori or Kensho and Zen, which is usually described as an experience of blissful oneness with everything that changes everything forever. Okay, okay so we got part two now. Part three, little switches in a part of the brain called the thalamus, which is this big sensory switchboard. And there are two thalamuses, thalami, one on each side of the brain. Okay. There are little switches in the thalamus that regulate whether uh, someone is, whether we are in the allocentric or, or I'll just do it this way, whether we're in the, yeah, allocentric or egocentric mode of processing. Those switches are regulated by um, GABA. GABA is a neurotransmitter that's calming, tranquilizing, soothing, relaxing, and so forth. Okay. Um, More GABA tips us into an allocentric orientation in our sensory processing. Less GABA, in other words, less sense of relaxation, less sense of tranquility, less sense of peace, more red zone activation tips us toward egocentric processing. And that kind of makes sense. So think of this from the perspective of an animal. A squirrel, a mouse, a monkey, an early hominid. Okay? Things that are up close, I really need to think about them, friend or foe. And I need to think about it fast. Probably with starting to get revved up in my dealings with it. That would tip me into egocentric processing. And it would also... Uh, tend to lower the tranquility that my mind was in or my body was in so I can deal with fighting the foe or, you know, chasing the carrot or hugging the friend. Okay? See the basic idea? All right? So, two more little wrinkles, and then I'll give you the punchline. Um, so, the networks of the brain, the more ancient networks, especially that handle alerting, intertwine with the allocentric processing networks. And the networks that handle orienting and responding intertwine more with the egocentric networks. Okay? So here's the takeaway view. Uh, And this is kind of my summary of what Austin's writing about, which is not always easy to find because, you know, uh, in what he's writing, but you can really see it there. So I want to give credit. This is his theory. Number one, by doing meditative practices that really emphasize open awareness, where we're present in the moment, continually in the now, like that little practice I did with you in the very beginning today, where, you know, uh, experiences are appearing in consciousness and then passing away right away. And that's how we're doing meditation. That's a classic choiceless awareness, something's called vipassana, uh, open awareness practice. As we do that, in Zen they call it just sitting, shikantaza, just sitting. As we're doing that kind of meditation, we're really engaged in pure alerting. We're not particularly trying to orient, because even orienting comes half a second or a second or two seconds into the processing stream. When we're really doing open awareness practice, radically doing it, really in the now, uh, everything is continually landing as a fresh thing, right? We're really engaging the alerting function of the mind and therefore the alerting neural circuitry. And since neurons are fired together, wired together by stimulating 
that alerting functionality, we're strengthening it. Okay? So now we're strengthening the alerting function. And by extension, we're also strengthening the allocentric way of relating to things. Also, as we do practices uh, in which we... I'll take you out to Dogen, why not? When we increasingly open out into everything and relax the self and feel connected to everything, we are also stimulating and strengthening allocentric points of view. Okay? We're becoming more allocentric in our way of engaging life. Even conceptually, as we start having more and more care and concern for all people, all beings, not just human beings, all at all places and times, we're going more allocentric. So we're strengthening it. Okay? So now we can see that in our practices, we can strengthen the alerting function. We can strengthen also the allocentric function and the neural substrates of these two. And also third, in our practices, we can cultivate tranquility. We can cultivate GABA activation, which also will help keep those little switches inside the thalamus tipped into the allocentric setting. So that, with that as preparation, now we come to the conclusion. Austin asks, why are most accounts of, medi- of, in- of awakening not during formal practice? Particularly in Zen, they tend to be experiences in nature, not in formal practice, when surprise is involved, and often when someone is looking above the horizon line. You know, the morning star, right? Various monks who are awakened are the statues of them. They're looking up. Think of other traditions besides Zen uh, where people talk about looking to the heavens. We lift up above the horizon line. We're inclined into that allocentric mode. So Austin's notion, which I find to be the most fully developed and marvelous account of what could happen in certain aspects of awakening, is that through our practices, we strengthen the alerting function. Through our practices, we strengthen allocentric processing. Through our practices, we strengthen tranquility. And then in this cycling that's very natural in the thalamus between allocentric, egocentric, allocentric, egocentric, allocentric, egocentric, the allocentric spikes get higher, egocentric, allocentric, and then something happens. The frog quirks or whatever it is. You know, the bottom falls out of the bucket. The Zen master whacks you on the back. You know, and at a peak allocentric moment, you're just startled and zapped. And that little switch in the thalamus gets locked on allocentric and ka-whoosh. You are one with everything. (laughs) You hang out there after a while and then you gradually, after hours, if not days or weeks or longer even, Past, you gradually come back down to earth again and restabilize, but you're transformed forever after. Not just the coolest theory. <laughs> and it goes to practical stuff. So, what do we have to cultivate now in our practices? And then we'll do this the alerting function, we can train in open awareness practices, which require the prerequisites of training and concentration and steadiness of mind. Because otherwise, we do open awareness, you know. Breath, breath, breath. 
shopping list, money, blah, 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 breath, you know, you want to stabilize, okay? So practicing that uh, alerting function of just open awareness as if consciousness is like a windshield through which time is streaming, in effect, um, and in, as soon as something appears on that little windshield, whoop, you let it go by. As you move through it or as time moves through you. Okay. Second, the development of a sense of opening into allness, relaxing into everything. And third, tranquilizing. That are, and then ultimately put yourself in positions where you become accident prone to grace. Okay? I like it. All right. So you want to try it? Yeah. There we go. Yeah. All right. So I'll do this for about 15 minutes. Again, a taste. I like these little tastes because then you can do them on your own. As very, it's neurologically informed, and then we'll take a break. What was the second thing? Was allocentric, the kind of opening into allness, less sense of self, and the third was uh, tranquilizing, calming, relaxing. As I said in passing earlier, tranquility is one of the seven factors of awakening in Buddhism. All right? And more than anything else, what I find is so great about this stuff is the idea that we can do it ourselves, right? It's, this is a practice that's good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end, wherever we find ourselves, with regard to whatever it is we're practicing, right? People who are intermediate, in a sense, broadly defined, just factually, in general, may well be beginners with regard to some new idea or some new thing they're engaging. Whatever it is, wherever we are, we can do this stuff, okay? And the more we stimulate the neural substrates, the more we will strengthen them. Okay, so to start, if you can, see if you can pay attention just to steady awareness. This will be a bit of a challenge for some. See if you can stay attention, stay, stay steady with and pay attention to 10 breaths in a row. One whole breath is one. Very softly in the back of your mind. Um, see if you can just kind of count them. Do the minimum amount of energy involved with counting so that mainly you're in the sensations of breathing. And also if you want to help yourself, you can start with your hands closed and with each breath, just put out a finger. (coughs) Okay? And if you lose track, just start over. It's all right. And some people will breathe faster or more slowly than others. Um, I'll do this with you. And um, if you get to 10 before I do, Uh, It's okay, just start over, and then we'll take it, we'll do some other things after this. Let's begin.
okay and as you stay with your body See what it's like to gradually relax. Gradually become more tranquil in mind and body. While resting in that vanishingly thin moment of time that is now. Letting sounds and sensations, thoughts, intentions, and emotions, all of it, appear on the windshield of consciousness, as it were. As time streams through you or you move through time, aware of what's landing in the moment and continually letting go. Letting yourself rest in not knowing. Just sitting, not knowing. Remaining alert to each moment while continually and radically letting it go. Not trying to uh, orient to any content of awareness or understand it or connect it to any other content. not trying to respond to any content of consciousness. Staying in alerting. Just sitting as don't know mind.
If the mind wanders, that's okay. Just come back to just sitting in don't know mind, resting alertly, not attempting to understand or connect any content of consciousness, letting it arise, and as soon as it arises, letting it go. And then as you rest in relaxed alertness, add to this a little awareness of how much experience is streaming through the mind. Focus less on abiding as mere alertness and let yourself recognize that the totality of your own experience, sights, sounds, taste, touches, and smells, thoughts and feelings, everything that's arising in you arises in some sense impersonally. You might have a sense of observing yourself from above yourself 
or looking at this room from maybe one of the corners up by the ceiling, seeing a lot of people, one particular body among them being your own, with a sense, of course, that the sounds, the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations arising in that particular body do so as part of a much faster world. In other words, take a couple minutes here to explore the sense of your own experience as arising impersonally, not created by some I inside the head. And also this impersonal arising of experience is due to a vast network of causes reaching down, if you will, into your past and history and out in some sense into relations with others, the natural world, the material universe itself, maybe even all the way out to transcendental causes. Trying to help this be a felt recognition of the ways in which anyone's experience arises due to impersonal causes and also a felt recognition that that arising is based on an intertwining with ultimately all reality altogether so that you have an increasing experience of, in a way, abiding as allness, rippling impersonally through awareness moment after moment.
relating to experiences now and in the future, relating to them tranquilly, cultivating that as appropriate, relating to them alertly while letting go, and relating to experiences impersonally, intertwined with a vast network of causes, including experiences like this one. exploring if you can relate to the experiences of standing, walking, taking a break, and even talking on the basis of tranquility, tranquilizing the mind and body, on the basis of that alert, open awareness that continually lets go, and on the basis of recognizing that experiences are impersonal, even as they may be very rich and intimate and rewarding. So, come on back in 15 minutes, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.